Hello, North Star. It's good to be with you, even from a distance, this Lord's Day. I pray that uh, the songs and the prayers and the scripture reading have prepared your heart for worship. And I also want to pray uh, together. Uh, before I pray, I want to tell you what I'm praying for. And I ask that you, in your homes or on your device or however uh, you're receiving this, uh, would pray these things with me because um, this will be, Lord willing, the last Sunday where we do it in this kind of setup where we're completely virtual, as it were. Uh, next Sunday, Lord willing, we will meet in our parking lot, still social distancing, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to see each other from a distance and have uh, the encouragement and uh, excitement that comes from the people of God being together. But as we begin to ramp up back to things as normal, um, I want us to pray uh, several things. Uh, the first thing I want us to pray is for humility. Uh, I've spoken about this several times, uh, that we need to understand God's involvement and his sovereignty in this pandemic and understand that church needs to respond in humility and repentance. Second, I want us to pray for faith, that we would trust the Lord, and that when we come back together, we would not be doing things from obligation or tradition, but from faith, because everything that is, does not proceed from faith is sin. I also want us to pray for grace for each other. Obviously, grace from the Lord, but that we would show that kind of grace towards each other, towards your leaders, and in between everyone, so that as we begin our services back with, with limitations, with logistical challenges, that we would just show abundant grace towards everyone. And also, uh, fourth, I, I want us to pray that we would rebuild with conviction, uh, not from a sense of pride or a sense of entitlement or in a sense of just wanting things back to how they were, but a real desire of conviction from the scriptures uh, that what we do uh, as we rebuild this thing uh, would be from conviction. And then uh, lastly, or second to last rather, uh, pray for faithfulness that we would not shrink back from what God has called us to do as a church for each other and unto the Lord in worship, and pray that we wouldn't slack off in any of those obligations, that we would really exhort one another uh, during this ramp up out of this. And then lastly, uh, just pray for prayer. Um, it is always a challenge to pray. Um, otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said, labor with me in prayer. It is work to be committed to prayer, so be in prayer that we would pray more. So. I'm going to pray for our time, and I will pray for these things for us together. Uh, pray with me, if you would. Father, we are so dependent on you for life and breath and everything. Wisdom we need to see how we need to repent and change, and the will to do so, that all comes from you by your Spirit. And I pray that you would humble us, none of us would rise up in pride, uh, either because we don't like how things have gone or we, we want things to go on like they have been for longer or shorter or whatever it is, I ask that you would give us grace to be humble. also pray, Lord, that we would be faithful and, and have faith in all things, that uh, we would not operate towards you uh, as a as merely lawgiver, but as the person that we trust in, that we believe in. Pray also that we would have just a sweet posture of kindness and grace and mercy and patience towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that as we gather again, that being apart will not man manifest in, in negative ways and, and bitterness will not grow and so that it, it would not be difficult in coming back together. also pray, Father, that you would give, especially uh, the leaders of this church, wisdom to know how we ought to rebuild and gradually get back to uh, 
uh, normal, healthy patterns in our church. I pray that we would be faithful to you, that we would not be concerned of what man thinks, or uh, and also that we would not fear man. I pray that we would fear you alone and be faithful to you as our God. I pray, Father, that you would give us understanding this morning, understanding of how important these matters are. I pray that we would pursue all the more the healthy spiritual disciplines of Scripture, reading, and prayer. And we would desire all the more to pray together. I pray that you would uh, incline our hearts to you pray that you would give us understanding of the word. And we ask that you would change us by your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, we'll start reading in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablet of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of gold, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. He who has near to hear, let him hear. So last week we looked at, in detail, the new or second covenant. The author of Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31 extensively. That's uh, chapter 8, verse 8 through 12. And we saw it in stark contrast to the first covenant or the old covenant. And we pick up here in the line of the author's argument where he goes on to show how there is some continuity between the first covenant and the new covenant. First covenant and the second covenant. There has to be some kind of continuity. There has to be some sort of sameness between the first or the old covenant and the second or the new covenant. Because there is consistency in God's divine nature. He doesn't have one plan that's completely one way and then turn to something completely new Nothing anticipated about it at all. And someone at this point might raise an objection. Why did God institute two covenants at all? Why not just start with the more perfect covenant in the first place? It's a good question. But there is a sense in the Bible that the world and the flow of redemptive history would not have been ready if God were have if God were to have revealed his full purposes 
all at first. You read this, in the fullness of time, God sent his son. There's a sense in which history had to develop and had to build out fully before the world, before humans in general, were ready to receive the Messiah and that second final covenant. So, the, verse, the first 10 verses of Hebrews 9, the author essentially proves that the first covenant, at the very heart of it, showed a need for a second covenant. Otherwise, when you read the New Testament, you're going to be uh, a little confused because the apostles, almost without exception, find fault with the Jews that they're not paying attention to their preaching of the second covenant. The argument is, you should have anticipated this. If you were paying attention to what Moses said, if you were paying attention to what all was going on, even in the arrangement of the tabernacle, then you would have anticipated and seen and known that something else was coming. That this first covenant was not ever going to be final. You can see this also in John 3. So the author directs our attention to the actual setup of the tabernacle. The arrangement of all its pieces. And just to let you know beforehand, we're not going to look at each of those things in detail because verse 5, the second half, he says, we cannot now speak of these things in detail. So I'm going to let the scriptures determine how much detail we uh, and time we give to each of these things. But I will raise a few questions along the way to help, help fill out in our minds why the author is making this contrast and why it's important. First thing I want you to see in verse 1 is that, speaking of the first covenant and the regulations for worship, and it says that they had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. That word earthly could be translated something like of this creation. The word is actually the Greek for cosmos. Uh, the same word you find in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, the, the whole created order, all of creation. So what the author is saying that the first covenant had a place of worship that was part of this creation. And you need to hold that in contrast with the heavenly sanctuary. If you were, if you were here a few weeks ago or tuned in a few weeks ago, uh, the author of Hebrews talks about the true holy of holies in heaven and the true sanctuary in heaven. And so the contrast is here that under the first covenant, we had a place of worship. We had these regulations, but they were all of this creation, not in heaven. So there is some continuity, but there is some and, and a lot of contrast here. So that's, have that flavor in your mind as we continue. Of this earth versus of heaven. And so he's focusing on this earthly place of worship. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. And in all of this, it's good to just have a basic and, and even more mature understanding of your Old Testament. It's good to know your Bible here. One of the questions I want to ask, and I think that should be begged here, is why does the author talk about the tent, the tabernacle? Why not the temple? Part of it is, if you look back into chapter 8, God says to Moses, make sure that you set this up in accordance with the pattern that I will show you. So the author is making the tabernacle the, the center point of his focus because that's something that came directly from heaven to Moses to build for the people. And the second point is that the very existence of the temple really underscores the author's point. So you have a temporary tent in the tabernacle, which was replaced some thousand years before this was written. So it was already replaced. And think about this. If you're, if you're David and you... You say to Nathan the prophet, I really want to build a temple for the Lord. If God gave the tabernacle and his giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai as the final solution, would not have David been reprimanded? 
The very desire, the very sense that David has, hey, it's not right for me to live in a palace and God to dwell in a tent. That that was the point of the tent to show that this was temporary. It was a temporary dwelling for God to tabernacle or to remain among his people. So David, even in recognizing the limitations of the first covenant, as the saints of old were supposed to, to see, he wants to take a step towards something new, something more permanent. There's this desire in the saints of old that we would move away. Even while we're faithful to God under the law, let's, let's move towards, let's, let's gravitate towards what is coming in anticipation. So verse 2 is a, is a basic description of the first room. If, if you have the handout on the second page, you'll see kind of a very basic diagram of the tabernacle and how it was set up, and this accords uh, very well with that. So he's reminding the hearers, these, these were all Hellenistic Jews most likely, and, and their history, their intellectual history, in reminding them of how the tabernacle was set up is, is like for Americans reminding them of details of the, the Declaration of Independence or, or of the 13 colonies or the War for Independence. Like these, these are part and parcel to what it means to be a Jew. So he's pointing back to something that they would have all known in their shared collective knowledge and He's going to draw some conclusions. But right now, all he's doing is reminding them and showing them in their, and creating in their minds a mental image of how this was set up. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain, so, so you have the first curtain, which is essentially the doorway at the entrance to the holy place. And then you have the second curtain, or the veil, that separated the first section from the second. There was a second section called the most holy place. And this is different how it's called in other places. It's called the holy of holies in other places. But here he calls it the most holy place. So I want here to show you just some, some of the flavor of this. This, this word tent should, should bring to your mind some memories, maybe camping with your family. This word here for section could be translated something like compartments. We would maybe call them rooms. Even if you've been camping in a, in a very large tent, it can be separated by different uh, bales or sheets, and then you, you, you call them rooms, and it's kind of an insult to the idea of rooms to call these different sections of this big tent a room. So the, the smallness... The confined nature of this, it's a tent, and there's these little compartments in this tent. Even though, comparatively, the tabernacle was large, it's still a tent. It's made out of cloth and wood. It's movable. You can tear it down, set it up. Part, the, the smallness is part of the point here. It's of this creation, like we saw before. It was a nice tent. It's still a tent made around the 13th century B.C. So I want you to pause here and consider this astounding contrast. Even while the author is giving us the flavor of the small, temporary, and of this creation worship place, God, the Lord, Yahweh, the Almighty, condescends and makes His presence seen and known in this place for His people in a tent. And this prefigures the incarnation. Verse 4, Having the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn holding manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it, cherubim of gold overshadowing the mercy seat. So there are a few textual issues here that I want to uh, extend to you. This is also a shameless plug for you to get a good Bible, uh, a good Bible that is also a study Bible. Um, the altar of incense, if you're looking at the diagram, it wasn't in the most holy place. Um, it's not literally in that second chamber. 
And then the second textual issue is other places in the Old Testament mention that only the two tablets of the covenant were actually inside the Ark of the Covenant. So why am I bringing this up? Um, I would rather you hear it here than elsewhere. And I'd rather show you that the Bible actually does hold up to scrutiny. And I want you to give you I want to give you grounded confidence in the word and not just say, oh, it's just mystical and it means something else. And don't worry about it. Just have more faith. Okay. So as to the first one, the location of the altar of incense, it probably carries the sense of belonging to, and the ESV actually has that note in it. Um, instead of in, the idea is uh, with. So the altar of incense was actually meant, if, if, if you know your Old Testament, it was not meant to give a good aroma to the people outside or even the priests in the second room. The idea is that the altar of incense was to carry the smell, the pleasing aroma of the burning incense into the most holy place. Because the altar of incense is for the Lord. It's not for our enjoyment. This relates very directly to different styles of worship and preferences in church. It's not for you. It's not for your delight. It's to be carried or whiffed into the presence of God as so it is a pleasing aroma for Him. So that's what it means, that, that it has the golden altar of incense, meaning it's part, essentially, of the function of the most holy place because that, that aroma is for the Lord. And it's actually spoken of that way in 1 Kings 6.22, if you want to check that out. And as to the second, um, these items, Aaron's staff that budded and the, the jar of manna, these items were supposed to be kept for all generations. So if you can envision the, the tabernacle moving from place to place to place, and then finally the ark being brought into Jerusalem, if these items are meant to be kept for all generations, it is not unlikely that they were eventually put in the ark itself. And so the idea of only, when you read only the tablets were in there, it could mean that other items had been taken out. So that's, that's a quick way of addressing these textual issues. And I know that's kind of an excursus, but it's important because I don't want some uh, non-believer to come to you and say, hey, look at this verse here and look at this verse here. They don't match. You can't trust the Bible. That's not the case. So either way, part of the point is this. We know very little about the different things that happened in the most holy place or even in the holy place. Very, very few events are reported for the very reason that the priests were meant to carry out their priestly functions. They weren't historians. The author may even be referring to documents that no longer exist. But that's part of the point. You, we don't really have access. We, we know the layout because God gave Moses the blueprint, but we don't know a whole lot about all that went on in there. Kind of a, a daily log. We don't have it. Out of sight, out of mind, for the most part, other than what was explicitly commanded. And the point is to bring all this imagery back to your remembrance. So I want you to kind of have this, this tent built out in your mind. And the illustration in the handout should help you do that, to kind of have it in your mind. And the author is about to make theological points based on the actual layout of the tent. And he's going to show us how to read our Old Testament. So this is very important. And he says... In the second place, uh, the second half of verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So a lot more can be said about the tent. But we're not going to go into detail on them. And there's tons of chapters about it. You can read these in the Old Testament. These are the boring parts, right? Boring parts of your Bible that you come to and that, that have laid waste too many plans to read through the Bible. But on the other hand, those details can cause us to get tunnel vision. The furniture isn't the point, and it's not why it was written down. Even in trying to find the illustration that you have in your handout, 
It was amazing how many different illustrations people had of the tabernacle and their labeling of it and all the different things it meant. People were doing exactly what the author says not to do here. Don't get focused on the furniture. Don't get distracted by the furniture. We so often get distracted by the wrong things in the Bible. We want to talk about the Nephilim and if Adam had a, a belly button. Just weird stuff that people come up and ask me sometimes. There are wrong ways to get excited about and focus on your Bible, and there are more wrong ways than right ways. But what God has given us is, is He is showing us, even in the layout of the tabernacle, something about what is coming in the second covenant. So imagine how frustrating it would be for God to give us this amazing picture of the inadequacy of the first covenant to help us understand our need for the second covenant and exactly why, and for us to focus on the furniture. If you've ever sent a long email and you're trying to explain yourself and be really clear and the person answers back and completely misses the point, and you've got to spend five more days doing an email tennis match trying to clarify yourself, that, that it might be a little bit of what the Lord feels like when we fixate on side issues. And we go on into tale about visions, regulations, and things we don't understand. You can't have an appearance of godliness and loving the Bible, yet denying the power therein. You may have been duped, tricked by yourselves or others into thinking that you were a lover of the Word of God while you just really love interesting things. So how do we avoid that? We pay attention to what is happening and why, not the furniture. Be a doer of the word. So verse 6, here, here is the theological interpre interpretation of all that's going on in the setup of the tabernacle. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. So he's telling us what happens, what is actually going on versus the uh, details of all the pieces of furniture. I want you to see a few contrasts here. He's building a contrast. He's showing what happens in the first section versus what happens in the second section. In the first section, many priests go in. And Levite, too. There's, there could be all all number of people going into the first section. As long as you're qualified, you got to be a Levite or a priest. But you can go in. You got to you know change the bread. You got to make sure the the incense is there. You got to make sure that all of it is clean. And so there's a lot of stuff going on daily in the first section. Second, they're they're without unique qualification. You could be a rookie, so to speak, in, in the priestly service or a Levite, and you could go in if you were asked to go do a specific job. So no unique qualification needed. And they did many different things. Probably hundreds of different things needed to be done for the daily maintenance of the first section. And they were going in all the time. It wasn't a okay, you can only go between the hours of 6 and 10, and you can only go Mondays and Thursdays. No, it was, it was anytime anything needs to be done, there's, there's no specific regulation as to when you can go in. And they also brought in many different things, whether that was incense or bread, any different number of things they might bring into that first room. So those are five contrasts you see in the first room. So now look at the second room. Verse 7, But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So only one priest, only one at a time, one person. And he must be the high priest. Not his protege, 
Not someone who is maybe more in understanding than the high priest. Or the next in line, it's only the high priest. And on no other day than the Day of Atonement, one day a year, there's only one time that anyone may enter, and only the high priest. And he only goes in to do one thing. And never without blood. When he enters, he must bring blood. And this is the, the, the need for blood that, that carries the flavor, never without blood. Never would he dare go into that room without blood. That's the most important for the author. And what is this one thing he does? He offers this blood for the sins of the people. And here we should note very importantly, it's not that he says very intentionally for the unintentional sins of the people. Neither in the Old Testament or the New Testament is there a sacrifice for unrepentant sin. The Old Testament calls it sinning with a high hand. Where you, you have rejected God's law. You don't care what he says in his word. You don't want to follow him. And if you in that moment think, well, he'll forgive me. That's a lie. There is no sacrifice for unrepentant sin. Why else would Jesus preach, repent and believe in the gospel unless it is first a requirement that you turn from your sins before his sacrifice can apply? So in the day of atonement, the priest slaughters a sacrificial lamb and he takes a little uh, vessel of the blood and he, he takes it into the Holy of Holies after making, uh, confessing the sins of his people and confessing his own sins. He goes in and he splatters the, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant with the blood of sacrificed lamb. In the Old Testament, when you read the term mercy seat, that is the term for the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. We talked about this way back when we discussed the word propitiation. It's the same word. It, it's the noun form of it. And it, basically the idea is the place of propitiation is that lid, that cover of the Ark. That's the place where God was said to have manifested his presence and his glory right above the lid of the ark where the cherubim had their wings folded out even as they are in heaven. They saw no form there, but, but the idea is that God's presence was especially manifested there. So when the priest comes in and casts the blood in that spot, the idea is that God meets out forgiveness because blood has been offered. It is averting his wrath from the people because blood has been given. Death has occurred. Sacrifice has been made. The author here says he offers. It's actually, this word isn't used in the Old Testament referring to the blood as sprinkle or apply. And I think the author is here understanding the real meaning of the Day of Atonement. He's, it's not just a ritual. It's not just a rite where, okay, we got to take the blood now and make sure you sprinkle it, get, get, a, get a nice splatter pattern on the lid. He is offering it, offering it for the sake of the people, offering a blood sacrifice to God so that his wrath might turn away. Verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. This is an amazing passage for several reasons. First, the author may here have some awareness that the Holy Spirit is uh, involved in his writing. Sort of like Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.1, Now the Spirit expressly says, 
that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You can't really find that in the Old Testament anywhere. So the author of Hebrews here and Paul in that place are essentially testifying to the fact that they're aware that the Spirit is moving them along to write these things. There is a general theme of those ideas in the Old Testament. But there's also a sense in which here, where he says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates. I think what he's saying also is that if you look closely enough by the Spirit, the truth of what's going on in these events will be clear to you. The Spirit is indicating by the Word of God through a spiritual understanding, not meaning mystical understanding, but as God would have you actually see it, empowered by Him to see the truth of it, not with the callous eyes of sins, but in holiness, seeing His Word, that the Spirit is speaking through the Word to help us understand what they actually mean. Second, what does this Spirit indicate here? The first chamber or compartment is symbolic for the present age. I think he's probably speaking here of uh, the reference point of the tabernacle. Um, and if, if it, it probably carries the meaning of just symbolic for the age then present. And how is it symbolic of that age? Here's the idea. There's no approach to God directly. You have to first go through the first room and then into the second. You never went directly into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. So there was no approach to God allowed except through those rituals. So all those daily practices, all those offerings, they had to be done all year and rightly before the entrance of the holy of the high priest into the holy holies, holy of holies was even considered a possibility. So as long as the first chamber stands and all its furniture and all its practices and the way into the holy places not yet opened. I think here the author means the real holy places in heaven that he's talked about. He's mentioned them so many times up to this point. If he were just talking about the most holy place, he could have just said that. Right, Because he's already used that term. So the verse would have read something like this. The way into the most holy place is not yet opened. But it is open. I mean, you can move the veil and the high priest can go in there. I think the idea is that the entrance into the real holy of holies, the real most holy place, is closed as long as this system, as long as this whole arrangement, this pageantry of the first section and the second section is still in effect. So this is stunning. The author is saying that at the heart of how God drew near to the people under the first covenant, that the whole arrangement of it screams off the page that this cannot be final. And just imagine for an average worshiper especially, you couldn't draw near to God in a real sense, he's in the Holy of Holies and only the high priest can go in there. You're on the outside. You're, you're looking in and you hope that the priests and the Levites uh, sacrifice your offering correctly and, and do it all in accordance with the laws and that the high priest is qualified to go in and he's, he's made sacrifice for his own sins. And you're, you're just on the outside hoping it all works. You couldn't even approach the center of the shadow. That's the idea here. So the, this, this earthly tent is, is a shadow or a prefiguration of what is to come. You couldn't even get close to that at the heart of it. Second half of verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And here we see the heart of the problem. It's not just that we can't draw near. 
okay? Because consider the cherubim. They're near, but there's a sense in which they can't even fully appreciate God's presence. In heaven, they are flying with one set of wings and covering their eyes with another set and covering their feet with another. Even for them, these heavenly beings that we don't even understand can't fully be in the presence of God. The heart of the problem for us, aside from the fact that there is this massive gulf between our God's essence and our essence, the problem is our conscience. The problem is our sin. So before we think this arrangement of limiting the approach to God was an unnecessary thing, or that uh, we didn't really need it, that maybe God was just being hard to get. It's not God's fault. The problem is our sin. And its effect on our conscience. Why did God give something that could not perfect the conscience? Because there is only one thing could ever perfect the conscience of the believer. So God, for centuries preceding this time of reformation, God taught the people about sin and righteousness and what would need to happen one day. What he was preparing to unveil fully. And those who were listening understood it and waited for it. The idea here is that our consciences can't be perfected by these rituals, by this pageantry. We're dirty. The flavor in Hebrews of the problem of sin is, is multifaceted, but one of the main notes is this idea of being ceremonially unclean. There is a filth of sin. So important that you understand this and maintain this idea in your, your mind that the problem of sin is not just a legal problem. It's not like you've just broken a law, some third party out there that is just uh, cold and has brute force in existence and you've broken some rule and there's got to be payment for breaking the rule. We are dirty, filthy because of sin. And he says that these regulations were imposed until everything is made right. So, so the phrase here is translated in the ESV, the time of Reformation. Don't think Protestant Reformation here, there. The, the flavor is the time of all things being made straight. The point, the point here is that in the first covenant, the people... The first covenant versus the problem, there was, there was kind of an ill-fitting nature to it. Imagine trying to wear a, a piece of clothes that's five sizes too large or two sizes too small. The idea is that there's, there's a crookedness. It doesn't fit just right because it can't perfect your conscience. It's a stopgap. It's a band-aid to try and get us from point A to point B. And God is teaching us things about our need for the second covenant, even in that flavor, that feeling of ill-fittedness. So the real saint in the Old Testament would have cried out, this doesn't work. This doesn't feel right just yet. And you can see that in Psalm 51. Where David cries out that even though if you wanted sacrifices, I would give it. I need you to do the work in my heart. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. He's looking to something that the sacrifices performed or sin can't do. They can't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So for those who trust God fully, they knew. They had anticipation of this time of things being made right. The time of correction. The fixing of this mess. In the Greek, verse 10 actually ends with this word, impose. It has, it has a decidedly negative flavor. 
imposition, like something being laid on you that's heavy. It's, it's pressed down. It has force and weight, maybe even finality. It's the same word used to describe Lazarus in the tomb. In uh, John, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. A stone was imposed on the cave. So to understand the flavor and how the author is setting up this dramatic cascade of truth that's about to come in in verse 11, that the last word in verse 10 is this, this kind of heavy gravity of imposition. It's not going to perfect your conscience. This, this is burdensome regulation that's on the people imposed until the time of reformation. The first word in verse 11 in the Greek is actually Christ. So you have this feeling of the imposition of regulation, that it's not working, that can't perfect your consciousness, and then immediately the first word in verse 11, Christ. And in Greek, when you use a word at the first of the sentence, that's like putting an exclamation point on it. So if we were to render this in English in a way that really accords with the emphasis here, it'd be just one sentence all by itself, Christ. After all this imposition, after all of this waiting, after all of this recognition that this can't work, the way into the Holy of Holies is closed because the system of two rooms is still standing and we got to do this pageantry and waiting and waiting and imposition. Christ! But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, you see? He entered once for all into the holy places. Which holy places? The ones in heaven. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. This is the heart of the book. These two verses. This is the whole point. He's been dressing it up, preparing us for it, and he's going to tell us all of how it applies the rest of the book. This is the heart. We'll look at it in detail the next time we're together in Hebrews. A few points of application before we close. The first is that God closes the gap. He is the one who breaks down the barriers to be near his people. What's the image in your mind when you think of the veil being torn when Jesus died? Is it now that we can approach through the first room and into the second without hindrance? That's not the idea. The idea is that God's presence, in a sense, confined in in his in the powerful way it was manifested in the first room, he himself tears the veil from top to bottom and goes to be among his people. We no longer have to enter through the rooms. He is among us. A day is coming and is now here when the true worshipers of God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the Lord is seeking such people to worship him. We do not make our approach to God in the most fundamental sense. God comes to us. Second, sin is more than guilt and punishment. Sin makes us impure, dirty, filthy. Some sins show this more than others, and some of that is cultural. But all sin especially idolatry, is repugnant to God. The flavor in the Old Testament is that sin and filth and rot and decay, those are all terms mixed together. Think of a a piece of fruit that's fallen from a tree. It should be good, it should be right, but bugs and Maggots and rot have taken over and someone offering that up to you, the feeling you would have, the revulsion of something like that. 
That's the flavor of sin in the Bible. It's not just breaking a code. And all of our deeds, all of our righteous acts are as filthy rags apart from him. And we can't get it right because our hearts aren't right. Our consciences, the, the very, very center of our being and motivations for doing this or not doing that, all of that is polluted, crooked. Third, Christ's sacrifice purifies or perfects our conscience. This is the promise of the new covenant that we looked at last week. I will write my law on their hearts and write it on their minds. He purifies, he makes right, he makes straight our conscience. There is a subtle form of legalism in trying to get your life straight so that you can feel near to God by doing spiritual disciplines even. Sin ruptures the fellowship not necessarily from God's side for the believer, but on our side because of the assault on our conscience. You cannot feel happy, joyful in God's presence, in fellowship with Him when your conscience is plagued by sin. Just like Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden and I hid from you because he knew he had sinned. The fellowship had been broken. He didn't want to be close to God. We recoil. Christ's sacrifice alone, applied by the Spirit, in the heart, through faith, purifies the conscience of the worshiper. Some of you may have been going about the Christian life completely wrong. Fellowship with God is not like working to improve your grades at school. You've got a plan I'm going to get up at this time and I'm going to work on these problems and I'm going to read these books and I'm going to get it together. And I'm going to talk to my teachers and I've got this long plan to figure it out and improve my grades. Before the adults who are listening, it's not like a plan to improve your credit score. I'm going to get this job. I'm going to ask for this raise. I'm going to pay this off. I'm going to consolidate this and I'm going to get it all straight. And I'm going to improve my standing so that God has favor on me. That can't perfect your conscience. Even if what you're doing is prayer, Bible reading, singing, worship, whatever it is, you can't perfect your conscience. It's not a 10 to 20 step journey. Christ has opened the way. And He has brought and worked an eternal redemption. Not just in the future sense, it reaches backward and forward, an eternal redemption for His people. His sacrifice can purify your conscience forever. In His death and resurrection, the worshiper has total confidence that we are completely acceptable to God in His sight. Yes, we must repent. Always. There's never a situation in the life of a believer until glory that we will not have to be repenting. But the point is, all religions work the other way around. This is the final point. We repent, we want to do good works, not because we want to be close to God, but because God has already closed the gap and made Himself close to us. Every religion is the other way. Be a good person. Do these things. Don't do these things. Get your act together. God will bless you. And if we're not careful, that's exactly how we can define the Christian faith. Even if we don't say it that way, we feel that way. Get your act together, do's and don'ts, God will bless you. That's not Christianity. And while many of you have probably never said it that way, most of us fall into the trap of feeling that way in our inner life. Peace with God joy in God, nearness with God, fellowship with God, a pure and clean conscience. 
That's what we want. And we can, we can fall into thinking this way. Oh yeah, I've got salvation. That, that far off thing that will happen to me when I die, I'll get to go to a place called heaven. That's great. Um, and, and I can't earn that. Jesus earns it for me. So we can be basically evangelical in our understanding of what happens when we die. But in terms of what happens in our hearts every day, we're legalists. We immediately turn and think that all of the immediate blessings of the new covenant are things we got to go and get. We got to get together. We got to be a good person and God will give us this nearness. It's like insisting to continue to work in the shadows of the first covenant because we don't want the real thing. We want ritual. We want pageantry. But Christ brings us near. He, he closes the gap. He purifies the conscience. His sacrifice cleans us and restores fellowship between us and our God. And He gives us joy because He gives the Spirit without measure. That's faith in Christ. Again, some of you may have been going about your whole Christian life the wrong way. Like I said earlier, do you, why, this is a, an important example, and it, it may answer the question for you immediately. Why do we good, do good works? So that you can feel closer to God? Or do you lovingly follow in obedience because He has made Himself known to you? Do we do good works from the heart. Because in Christ, we have already been brought near and have fellowship already and we have already been made pleasing to Him and to His Father. That's no small distinction. That's at the heart of the Gospel. This isn't just some uh, nuanced thing that theologians talk about and the preachers want you to think about. This is the Gospel. You may not have a religion of works on the outside for where you go after you die, but everything inside, everything that is most important, even into eternity, your joy in God, your delight in God, you pursue through works and effort and striving and false starts and attempting to make it better and cleaning up your own mess. And it just won't work. You may have a constant spiritual angst and maybe a feeling that things are not right. Things can't be right or, or maybe shouldn't be right between you and the Lord. But the death of Christ, that eternal offering of His blood brings an eternal redemption. Before you get to matters and issues and questions of where you go after you die, this first and foremost, must purify your inward self and reconcile us to God at the deepest level from our heart. That's the new covenant. The first one with its pageantry and ritual could not perfect the conscience of the believer. It couldn't bring us into the Holy of Holies, but Christ has. He did it all. Last. Do you know Christ this way? Do you understand his gospel this way? Do you understand the extent of his work in redeeming you? That first and foremost, before we receive the blessings of eternal life, purify our conscience so that you can be reconciled to God. Has that happened? Is that an experience that is anything close to like what is going on in your life and what has been going on? If not, be reconciled to God in His Son, Jesus Christ. Cast yourself on Him. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. For many of you, it may be easier to believe that there is a place called heaven and that you will go there one day than to really feel and believe at the deepest level of your soul that you are loved by God in Christ. That He remembers your sins no more. 
and that he delights to draw near to you. Just as an aside, it shows very quickly in how difficult it is for us to maintain enjoyment, devotion, and prayer. What shall we do? Confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we thank that you gave the fathers of old a image, a presentation, a tent to show us that it wouldn't fit, it wouldn't fix everything, and to create in those who trusted you a desire, a yearning for something greater to come, for the time of reformation. We praise you that in Christ, this time of reformation has come. Thank you that his blood, not our works, his blood purifies our conscience. Give us faith to understand and see the magnitude of his offering of himself in our place for our sins, securing an eternal redemption. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.